0: Thanks, Connor, for praying for us. If you have your Bible, please do turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. You'll find it very helpful to have that open in front of you as we work down through this stunning and compelling chapter. The Lord has established his throne in heavens, and his kingdom reigns over all. This statement from Psalm 103.19 is an apt summary of the main message of Daniel chapter 7. Now along the way in this series through the book of Daniel, we've tried to keep in mind the earliest readers of this book. That would have been small Jewish congregations of God's people who had returned from exile in Babylon, and they would have been reading this book around 500 AD, where once they had been a strong, unified nation-state with great power and influence. Now they were just a bunch of fragmented communities trying to survive the oppression of all the powerful nations vying for conquest around them. The original readers of the book of Daniel would have been little communities of vulnerable saints looking out on their culture around them. They would have been discouraged, confused, and perhaps asking themselves the question, is God really in control of all the chaos we see in the world around us? Is there any divine design in the world? Or is everything just based on randomness and the survival of the fittest? Well, imagine them feeling that way. And then into that uncertainty comes the reading of the book of Daniel in their gatherings. Vision after vision that reminds the people of God that the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom does reign over all. And into those fragmented, vulnerable communities comes Daniel chapter 7. This powerful chapter with a vision of the God who reigns over the chaos of this world. In this chapter, we'll see, first, there's a recognition of the chaos that there is in the world. It's presented to us in super HD color, 3D apocalyptic imagery. But against some of the bizarre and striking and scary images in this chapter, the chapter states loud and clear right in the middle of it, there is a divine design governing this world. History is moving in a definite direction, and God's people are to trust God even when they cannot discern his design. That's the message of Daniel chapter 7 for those fragmented communities back in 500 AD. But we know that God has preserved this book in his word, and it is not just for them Them then, it is for us now. Many of us watch the news at the moment and we look out on the chaos of our world, ongoing wars, Syria, Yemen, Ukraine. We look at the cost of living that is spiraling out of control, governments that are struggling to know what to do, the rise of secularism in our own land, and we may find ourselves asking the same questions that those little communities were asking in 500 BC, sorry if I said AD earlier, I meant BC, we might be asking ourselves, is God really in control of all this? Is it warranted for me to keep trusting in a God who claims to reign over such a world as this? This chapter is here to help us with this question. It's here to strengthen our faith by inviting us to lift our eyes again to the heavens and to remember that our God is still on his throne. And the chapter does this by walking us through a very startling vision that Daniel has. Look down at verse 1. We read, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Then what we get throughout the chapter is Daniel's recounting the vision that he has, and he recounts it in three main scenes that are beautifully organized to communicate our main point that the Lord reigns. In the first scene in verses 1 to 8, we get a real dose of realism, what to expect on the stage of world history. In the uh, second scene in verses 9 to 14, we get A healthy boost of reassurance. The vision of God whose kingdom reigns over all. And then in the last scene, verses 15 to 28, we get a reflection. Once again, on what we should expect until the end of history. So realism, reassurance, and a reflection. That's going to be how we're going to order the chapter this morning. And let's get right into the first scene. Verses 1 to 8 dose of realism, what we should expect to see in world history. Now it's important as we enter this scene that we recognize this is a vision. Visions in scripture are kind of like political caricature drawings that you see in the newspaper, kind of like this sort of thing that you see. This beastly wolf represents the energy crisis, and I assume that's Liz Truss there on the side trying to figure out what to do. Here's another, back from when Russia annexed Crimea, Russia depicted as this beastly bear biting this fish that is Crimea. Images like this are very powerful. Pictures like those caricatures, they present symbolic, realities, but the picture actually communicates more than just writing would communicate. Such caricatures, when you see them, they are to evoke strong feelings. This is like watching super high-definition TV with, I don't know, does this even work, with 3D glasses on that make the images jump out at you and make them come to life. That's what apocalyptic visionary language in the Bible is supposed to do. You don't Try to pin it down too specifically to specific things, you're supposed to get the overall feeling. So in verse 3, Daniel says he saw in his vision four great beasts coming out of the sea, different from one another. Now in verse 17 in our chapter, we're given a very helpful clue that gives us a controlling interpretive principle here, how we're to interpret these beasts. We're told these four great beasts are four kings kings over kingdoms, who shall arise out of the earth. Now, in the structure of the book of Daniel, this vision in chapter 7 corresponds very closely with the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had back in chapter 2. Do you remember the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had of a great statue and four successive kingdoms that would rise and fall? And then in the midst of that, God would set up his kingdom, the stone not cut out by a mountain That would rise and fill the earth. This vision of four successive kingdoms in chapter 7 is very closely aligned with the four successive kingdoms we saw back in chapter 2. Let's look at the beasts in turn here. The first beast we're told in verse 4 is like a lion with eagle's wings but then its wings are plucked off. The beast stands up and walks like a man. We're told that the mind of a man was given to it. Now that sounds a lot like the experience of the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, who we read about earlier in the chapter. Jeremiah and Ezekiel spoke of King Nebuchadnezzar and referred to him as a lion and an eagle. The wings being plucked off sounds like when Nebuchadnezzar was humbled and given the mind of a beast. And remember, we're told that his hair grew long like eagle's feathers. Then his reason was restored and the mind of a man was returned to him. I think we're fairly safe to see that this first beast seems to speak of the Babylonian empire and its rise to power. But then we're given in verse 5 a very quick change of scenery, and we're told about a second beast. It's like a bear raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth. It's told to arise and devour much flesh, a powerful, hungry depiction of, an, of a devouring empire that may well represent the Medio persian empire that followed the Babylonian empire. But then you're not given time to reflect on this because in verse 6 we move on to the appearance of a third beast. This time we're told like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back and four heads. We're told that dominion was given to it. We know historically at this point that after the Medo-Persian Empire in world history there was the rise of the Greek Empire and Alexander the Great who took over all Of the known world, pretty much, with great swiftness and power. But then again, we're not given a moment to reflect on this. Because in verse 7, Daniel speaks of a fourth beast, saying it was terrifying, dreadful, exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth and devoured and broken pieces and stamped with its feet. Now the iron and the feet remind us of the feet of iron in Nebuchadnezzar's statue vision. This may indeed be a reference to the rise of the Roman Empire. But certainly this fourth beast is not exhausted by the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. We're told that this beast was different from all the beasts before it. It had ten horns on it. Now horns symbolize strength in apocalyptic literature in the Bible. But there seems to be amidst these great horns of strength. There seems to be some internal wrangling within the beast's horns. In verse eight, we're told this little horn rises and three others are plucked off before it. And then we're told that this little horn has the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. You could call this vision of the horns and the kings uh, represented by them. Verse 24 tells us the horns stand for other kings that flow out of this beastly picture. This is a picture of Rome, yes, but also the last human kingdom, one in which human evil and rebellion will reach its apex. Now, we have to stop for a moment here and ask, what does all of this mean? On my phone here, I have on my camera the option of taking something called a pano, I love taking them. It stands for a panoramic photograph of a, wild, a wide field of vision often up at the north coast there. Uh, we were there a week ago on the, the, the convent walk in Port Stewart. Uh You see such a big lovely wide scene and one photograph won't capture it so you press the panel button and you scroll across and you have to slow down and move it up and down a wee bit. But if you move it right you get this beautiful kind of series of images that your phone automatically patches together and makes into one great image. That's what I think we're to do with the successive beasts in this first scene. This is, I think, a panoramic image of human history. And I say there, I think this, but I shouldn't really say that. I think we can say we know this because this is how The apostle John handles the vision in the book of Revelation in Revelation chapter 13. And if you have your Bible and you turn with me there to Revelation 13, you'll be able to follow along. John reflects on what he sees. It's a very similar vision to what Daniel sees, a portrait of the rise and fall of empires across the history of the world. And listen very carefully now to Revelation chapter 13 verse 1 where John speaks of the beast that he sees that represents the history of this world. John writes, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And then later on, we read it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. That is, those who dwell in heaven. Now, do you see what John does as he reflects on and builds on what he has seen, which is similar to what Daniel has seen? In the book of Revelation, Daniel's four beasts are patched together into one great composite image of one great beast. But the one beast in Revelation 13 has all the characteristics of the four beasts in Daniel chapter 7. What does the beast represent in Revelation? It represents this present world, living in rebellion against God. Paul calls it this present evil age, an age that rejects any thought of God and that is driven by a ruthless pursuit of success and domination. So if you were to turn, if you turn back to Daniel chapter 7, we see that this first scene is a panoramic vision of human history. A unified picture of conflict, conquest, and the fight for control. The four kingdoms rising and falling, ending with this final kingdom that does not seem to end, It's a story of the rise and fall of empires. It's a story of historic colonialism and oppression, slavery, ethnic cleansing, racism, world wars, nuclear weapons. The picture of the four beasts that become the one beast in the book of Revelation is a story of humanity doing life without thought for God. The last kingdom is characterized by enmity against God, inspired by the ultimate beast, Satan, and his kingdom that fuels the kingdom of this world as it lives in rebellion against God. This enmity that began in the Garden of Eden that led to the battle of two kingdoms throughout the history of the world, the establishment of the kingdom of God over against the kingdom of Satan in this present evil age. But as we step back from this first scene, let's remember what we're saying about it here. This gives us a healthy dose of realism. Here is what you should expect to see played out on the stage of of world history in a fallen world. Conflicts, conquest, fighting for dominion. And if you don't have that information, then you could look out on this world that looks so chaotic and you could be tempted to despair and think there's no God in control of it all. Yet the Bible tells us in a fallen world, conflict, chaos, and terror that's exactly what you should expect. There's going to be the rise of empires and the fall of empires, there's going to be ruthlessness and terror, there's going to be oppression. There's going to be ethnic cleansing. This is a world that lives against God. This is what happens in a fallen world in rebellion against God. And this scene given to Daniel that we read about in verse 15, for example, it creates anxiety within him and and stress. He sees the, 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 the gripping images and he's absolutely terrified. Sadly, down through the history of this world, there are very few years in our known history where there have not been parts of the world at war with one another. I was reading stats throughout the week and it was just so depressing. Rarely a year in the history of the world, thousands of years, where there was not one party warring against another. And we would think now, In our modern day, where we've put such things as war behind us, we we would think that this wouldn't happen, and yet here we are again on our doorstep with the war in Ukraine. According to this vision, this is the kind of thing we should expect to see in a fallen world. But here now we enter the second scene, which breaks in so suddenly and powerfully into what we've seen so far. Here, Instead of realism, we get a lovely dose of reassurance. Remember, there's a higher throne above all earthly empires. So in the midst of the days of this fourth kingdom and this little horn that makes great boasts against God and his kingdom, the whole vision dramatically shifts now in verse 9. It's as if the author of the vision is saying, don't Fret too much about what you're seeing depicted in these beasts. Instead, fix your eyes on this. And this part of the vision has its own little mini three parts within it, each marked off by Daniel describing what he looks at and sees. So, now in this vision, in verses 9 and 10, Daniel says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of days that's God, takes His seat. He took his seat. Now, the Ancient of Days is one of those wonderful names for God that we get in Scripture. We've just looked at a panoramic view of world history. In the first scene, well, here's one whose days stretch before history began and whose days will know no end. He is the Ancient of Days, our steady, constant amidst all the clamoring changes of world history. The first thing we're to notice in this part of the vision is that with the Ancient of Days comes a scene of composure. In the midst of all the clamor of the nations for dominance, the Ancient of Days just calmly takes his seat. I love the way the language is presented. The Ancient of Days just takes his seat. Not intimidated by the beast, not stressed in any way, never in a hurry, God takes his throne over all. Second little thing we see in this second scene is that this ancient of days, he's not just composed, he's majestic. And that's depicted in the description of his clothing as white as snow and in the millions upon millions surrounding his throne. I'm not great with maths, but a thousand to thousands, I think, makes a million. He has 10,000 times 10,000 standing before him. It's a picture of countless beings around a throne, the entourage of this great majestic king. Third, though, we're told that he's sitting down to judge. That's communicated in the flames of fire around his throne. And in the final part of verse 10, where we read, the court sat in judgment and books were opened. Then, however, in the middle of the second scene, in verse 11, the second part of it, Daniel says again that he looked and saw He looked now at this little horn, remember, at the end of the first scene that was making great boasts. He looks at the little horn to see what's going to happen of him. Daniel says, I looked, and the beast was killed, its body destroyed and given over to be burned by fire. But then in verse 12, we read that though their dominion is removed, in some way, something of these worldly kingdoms will go on for a season and a time. That means a fixed period set by God. So there's some kind of entrance of God, some kind of judgment that leads to the victory over the beast. But yet, in some way, there's these world empires continue. The picture here is, or what we are to see, is that the beast may look impressive and powerful able to have the upper hand against God, but in reality, the beast is nothing before the majesty and might of God. Well, you'd think the vision might end there, into this scene of the rise and fall of world empires without God, this vision of the Ancient of Death sitting on his throne, judging the beast, destroying him and everything he stands for. But the vision doesn't end there because now in the third part, Daniel sees one like a son of man. In verse 13 he says, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of Deaths and was presented before him. One like a son of man. Like a human but more than a human. Because this one shares the throne and the authority of God. In verse 14, we read that all authority is given to this son of man, and the right response of all peoples, nations, and languages, well, it's to buy an allegiance to this authoritative king. Now, let's just step back for a moment and think about what this middle section, this middle scene of the vision speaks of. This middle scene speaks of God the Father exercising a judgment in history that would destroy the ultimate authority of the beast and give ultimate authority to his son, Jesus Christ. When did this happen? It happened on the cross. God judged Satan, the beast, and his present evil authority in this world when he triumphed over them through the death of Jesus and his resurrection. In Colossians 2.15, the Apostle Paul writes, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Do you remember how in Nebuchadnezzar's vision in chapter 2, in the days of this fourth kingdom, which represented the Roman Empire... Daniel saw this, or Nebuchadnezzar saw this vision of the stone that was not cut by any hand, and it smashed down the statue, and then the stone gradually became a mountain through world history, God's kingdom being established throughout the history of the world. This middle scene is a picture of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, the judgment of Satan through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the fullness of this vision will only be known at the second coming of Jesus Christ when he returns on the clouds and brings the fullness of his final judgment that he started and inaugurated in his death and resurrection. Though the ultimate act of judgment was established through Christ's death and resurrection on the cross, in verse 12 in our vision here, we read, the kingdoms of this world will continue for a time set by God in which the nations are being gathered in. Now, notice for a moment just the sandwich structure in this um, chapter or in this scene in the middle. It's really, really wonderful. In verses 9 and 10, you get the Ancient of Dez taking his seat to judge. In verses 13 and 14, the bottom slice of the sandwich, you get the Son of Man receiving all authority and the inheritance of the nations. And in the middle, you get the... Can you hit that on there, Dom, just if you can, from where you are? Thank you. Well, in the middle, we can see what we get, hopefully. We get the establishment of the beast's judgment Um, in those middle verses. I don't know what's happened to our PowerPoint here, but I'm clicking away and nothing's happening. So let's just draw in again and reflect on what we're seeing. The literary structure of the narrative is set up to, in a sense, create a vice around the beast. (laughs) You have the Ancient of Days establishing judgment, you have the Son of Man winning a victory and overthrowing the nations. And that powerful image is squeezing the beast and this present evil age without thought for God. Thanks, Dom, for getting that established. This vision, remember, is given to encourage the weak and beleaguered people of God. It reminds us of the central message of Daniel. Daniel. Heaven rules. There's a higher throne above all the chaotic forces of this world. And we are to live in light of that reality. In fact, the heart of the gospel is the truth that this Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. He came, as Paul says at the beginning of the book of Galatians, to rescue us out of this present evil age and to transfer us into the glorious kingdom of God. That is his, where we will enjoy rest and peace forever. So there in that middle scene of the narrative, we're called to take our eyes off the chaotic scenes of world history and to lift them to the higher throne. The God who has established his kingdom in the heavens and whose kingdom reigns over all we see the judgment of this present evil age meted out in Christ. And he rises from the dead and says in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go and make disciples of all nations. And one day we will see Christ coming again and bringing in the back end of the kingdom as it is fully established. And that is where now we go in the third and final scene of our narrative. We've had a dose of realism, we've had a beautiful shot in the arm of reassurance, and now finally we see reflection. There will be groans in this present age as Christ's kingdom is established, but one day those groans will give way to glory. In verses 15 and 16, Daniel, still in the vision, reflects on what he's seen, and he asks for an interpretation of what he's just seen. In verses 17 and 18, he gets absolute clarity on what the vision is about. Look at how clear this is. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. It's really clear. So by the rise and fall of kingdoms, a picture of world history, a picture of this church age, but at the end of it, we will see the fullness of God's judgment and the fullness of the Son of Man's authority as he comes and gives the, the, the kingdom to his people. But Daniel's more curious than that. In verses 19 to 21, he says, tell me more about the fourth beast and the ten horns. And in verse 21, the tribulation he'll bring to the saints until he's finally judged. Now, Daniel here is like those people who love to get out their charts and say, let's map out what every horn represents the little horn, who he is in history, and the three horns that fall before it. Let's get this all tied down, pinned down. See, that is a complete mistake. That is not how apocalyptic visionary imagery is to be handled. It's not to be specific. It's always not looking just at the forest or the trees. You're to step back and look at the forest. So Daniel asks, tell me more. But in verses 23 to 27, further explanation is given, but you'll notice not much more is revealed. In verse 23, a fourth kingdom, we're told, is different to the others. It'll attempt to exercise dominion over all the earth. We're told the ten horns are ten other kings, kingdoms that will arise. Out of those, another kingdom will arise that will be particularly evil. In verse 25, the king of this kingdom, this little horn, speaks words against the Most High for a time set by God. It's my understanding that all of this refers to the conditions we are to expect in the age of the church. There will be the rise and fall of empires. There will be conditions that lead to challenges for Christians and for the church. This Vision does seem to hint at tribulation and difficulty reaching a climax in one particular kingdom or one particular ruler. This seems to be what we're told in the New Testament when the Apostle John speaks of an Antichrist figure, or Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2 speaks of the man of lawlessness who will arise. But it's very hard to grasp in what form this will take. What we're told here is that there will be tribulation and difficulty in the church age. We know this. That. that tribulation may well move to a point where it gets very, very difficult and evil through one great leader or one great kingdom, but we don't know what that necessarily means. And anyway, the emphasis is not to fall on speculation over that, so that we would fret over it. The emphasis in the vision once again falls on the higher throne. We're told a judgment will come at the end of this time. Verse 26. But then in verse 27, we're given a new piece of information. We're told that the kingdom will not just be given to the Son of Man, But look at what we read there. The kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of all kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. The kingdom is given to the Son of Man in verse 14, but here he shares that kingdom and that reign with his people. All the blessings and benefits of his accomplishments will be given fully and finally to his people. This points us to the fulfillment of that judgment in the middle section and the fullness of the coming of the Son of Man on the clouds at his second coming. So here's what we have in this narrative. Scene one, realism, a panoramic vision of world history. Scene three, the overview of history is expanded upon and explained. And what do you get in the middle of it? The reassurance. God has established His throne. He's accomplished a judgment through the death and resurrection of His Son. Through the age of the church, the kingdom will be built. There will be difficulties and challenges. But in the end, the king will come on the clouds, bringing the fullness of what we see in the middle scene. And in that day, all of the blessings and benefits of everything he has accomplished through his death and resurrection will be shared with the people of his kingdom. So that in Revelation 22, 3, John's final vision of that great moment when the kingdom will be shared with the saints. He says, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. His servants will worship him. They'll see his face. His name shall be in their foreheads and night will be no more. They'll need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. So, I hope in the midst of this all, you're tracking with me in some way. I've done my best. It's not easy. If I've confused you, I'm sorry. But what we see here is realism. Understand what this world will be like that is fallen. Reassurance. God has established his throne and he reigns over it all. History is moving in a definite direction. Our faith is not misplaced. In the end, the Lamb wins and the saints in the kingdom will share all the blessings and benefits of that reign. And this last section calls us to reflect on this. There's going to be difficulties in different parts of the world as the kingdom is established. But we are to take heart, knowing that the judgment has already been settled, the victory has already been won. We are to live in light of the reality of the victory of God. So, this week, as you go in to your week, as you look at the news, as you feel the pressure of trying to be a faithful Christian in the backdrop that we're in at the moment, don't fret. As you watch the news, don't fret with the rise of secularism. Have a sense of reassurance because God said that's what you should expect. But take heart. I still reign, I'm on the throne. The end is certain. Keep going, beleaguered people of God. Keep trusting, keep living in the light of the victory of the resurrection. Keep living and waiting and trusting on the fullness of that victory that is to come at the ultimate back end of the judgment, at the ultimate coming of the Son of Man with the clouds. Be patient. Keep trusting. Keep going. There's not chaos. There's not randomness. There's not just the survival of the fittest. God has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Go out with the assurance of that truth in your heart. Let's pray. Father, the picture of the terror of world history in this chapter is striking, But the composure of you, our God, is reassuring. And I pray, Lord, amidst the different parts of this vision that we've reflected on this morning, I pray that that one simple truth coming out of the whole chapter would stand. You want us to see, as we look out on the chaos and terror that's going on in our world, you want us to see and be reassured by the fact that you're still on your throne. You've told us what we should expect. And yet you've told us that you've broken into this present evil age. You're establishing your kingdom that will never end, that will never be defeated. And this is the day now where we can be saved out of this present evil age and saved into your kingdom by trusting in the Son of Man who came to seek and save the lost. O Lord, help us to live in the light of the truth that you reign and we pray, Lord, that if there are parts of us that we don't understand, that we would go away and read it very carefully and keep thinking and keep trying to ask for more light and more understanding. Lord, thank you for the truth of your word. And bless us as we respond and go into this week ahead, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to respond by singing this lovely hymn that takes this name for God in Daniel 7, this name that Jesus loved to use of himself. Son of man, ancient of days. Let's stand and sing together. and keep you, and make his face to shine upon you, and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you, and give you his peace in Christ
1: Jesus our Lord.